Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Before we jump into today's content, I have something I want to share with you. In a recent 2019 CEO benchmark study conducted by the Predictive Index, CEOs disclosed that four out of five top challenges they face relate to talent optimization. To win consistently, you need confidence. Confidence that you've got the right people in the right roles, that they're deployed around the right projects, and that those projects are mapped to the right organizational objectives. And you need more than gut level confidence. You need data to back that up. But the truth is, the rapid pace of change is exhausting. People and systems are being pushed to the edge, and diversity, equality, and inclusion issues remain unresolved. In this age of empathy, we can do better. That's why I'm super excited about a new talent optimization platform that Ben Straup, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions and a certified partner with the Predictive Index, is ready to show you. This technology-enabled, data-driven platform will give you an unfair advantage so you can win and succeed more. Visit peoplegetresults.com and use the code RAINMAKER to schedule your free personalized assessment and demo today. That's peoplegetresults.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER today. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here again today with my good friend and co-host, Roy Jones. Hey, Roy, how are you? I'm oh, doing very good. I am uh, very excited about this interview. It's going to be fun. Anytime I look at a bio and I see things like... Uh, Cosmic Empower Social Impact. Man, I, I, I'm into that. Yeah, I think there, there's I've a... Cosmic in a bio before. I haven't either, no. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to have Eric Ressler uh, with us today. He's the founder and creative director at Cosmic, which is a social impact creative agency. And Eric, you're going to have to explain to us what a social impact creative agency is. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be on and definitely happy to do that. Before we get into the questions, tell us a little bit about who you are um, and what you do. So I'm Eric Ressler, and as you mentioned, I'm the founder and creative director at Cosmic. Cosmic is a social impact creative agency, and what that means to us is that we focus our efforts on helping social impact organizations such as nonprofits, social enterprises, foundations, impact investors, generally just people and organizations who are in business or who have formed an entity to do good in the world. And there's a whole different flavor of that kind of popping up now with kind of B Corp and, you know, business for good and the lines are blurring, but generally that's our focus. And on the creative agency side, creative agency is just a general kind of catch-all term to describe an agency that basically works on brands, works on creative uh, media, digital experiences, and anything that we can use to empower these organizations to reach their goals and achieve their missions more quickly than they could without us. Okay. I think it's interesting that, you know, normally when we're talking to people like you, they either sit on one side of the fence or the other, right? It's either I work with commercial organizations or I work with nonprofits. So it's interesting and unique to be able to talk with someone who kind of straddles the fence on both of those, because I think you probably have experiences that you, you know, that can bleed over from both that would be interesting for our audience. Totally. I think some of that really comes from the background of, of the agency. So Cosmic is just 10 this year as an agency. Okay. And we didn't get our start in philanthropy or in social impact, strictly speaking. So we're based um, and headquartered in Northern California. And early on, we were doing a lot of startup work um, with B2B and B2C brands. And then alongside that, we were doing work with nonprofits and social impact organizations and just seeing kind of the different cultures and the different strengths and weaknesses between those organizations was something that we found to be 
pretty interesting. And there was carryover from each side that could help benefit the other side. About three years ago now today, we we knew that it was time for us as a company to put a stake in the ground around something. Um, we were a generalist branding agency. There's 40,000 of them in America. And we knew we needed to stand for something more significant. And we took a look at our portfolio and our experiences over the last seven years at that point and started to circle around all these different ways of basically saying we really enjoy working with social impact organizations and we see a ton of potential for our skill set and our expertise and the methodologies that we've learned in the startup and the corporate space to be applied to the impact space. And it doesn't translate perfectly. I don't want to um, you know, be insensitive to the fact of the differences between those spaces. But when we started to connect the dots between how things were shaping up and a lot of corporate social responsibility work and the B Corp movement, it became clear to us that the space is changing and that it didn't make sense from our perspective to commit to like, we only work with you if you're a 501c3, right? I totally get that certain folks do that and there's a strategy behind that. But for the kind of work that we're doing, it seemed unnecessarily restrictive and it didn't seem to be in tune with the way that the sector is shifting. That makes good sense. So let's get into some of this. Um, The first thing I want to talk to you about is the struggle that social impact organizations have around finding and growing funding. And I'm curious to know, do you see that on both sides of the fence? Or is it really something that you see focused on on the 501c3, the nonprofit side, and then just get your thoughts about why you think it happens? We see it on both sides of the fence is the short answer and in different ways. So the biggest issue that we see on the 501 side is restricted funding, right? Where Mm -hmm. these organizations might be really well-funded, but their restricted grants or their funds are earmarked for a particular program. And so whenever they want to do anything that might be considered overhead or doesn't fall strictly within the grant cycle or the, the grant that they've been awarded, then their hands are tied, right? And that does actually directly affect our work sometimes or communications and marketing in general. Um, and so we'd like to see that change um, for selfish reasons and just because we think it's the best approach for the sector. And then on the B Corp social enterprise side, we see a lot of the same challenges that we see or that we used to see with startup companies where they've got a lot to do, especially social enterprises. They have to ride this line being a profitable business and being an effective business and also being authentically committed to making a social impact. And both of those are important. It doesn't work if you are doing a really good job making a social impact, but the business side isn't shaping up well. And it doesn't work when you're an effective business, but the social impact side is maybe vapid or not really authentic. And so they have this dual mission and that leads to funding um, challenges and scaling challenges. But I would say that they do seem to be a little bit more tuned in to the concepts and the need for brand building and digital and some of those strategies. So there are a lot of nonprofits these days, I think that are, you know, they feel like they've tapped out traditional fundraising or maximized what they can do in their market. And they're now starting to say, we should start a for-profit arm of our organization to generate an additional, you know, create an additional revenue stream. Do you work with organizations like that? Do you, are you seeing that happen? And I'm curious to know your thoughts on what organizations are doing well and where they might be challenged in that area. Yeah. I mean, I think there's often this misconception that all nonprofits are charities and that everything is 100% reliant on donations or grants. And we see more often than not that there's a mix of revenue, that usually it's a combination of 
major gifts, um, small gifts, grant funding that comes in from institutional philanthropy, and then oftentimes services rendered or products sold, or uh, it's usually some kind of mix of all that. It's pretty rare for us to see an organization that say is 100% funded just by small gifts or even 100% funded just by grants. That one's probably the most common. We do work with organizations where 95% of their budget comes from multi-year general operating grants, for example. But yeah, we do see a lot of organizations experimenting with either like rendering services or consulting, especially in kind of the sustainability and energy space um, where they're selling their expertise or consulting services, same with environmental work or with uh, sustainable food systems. Um, That area of the ecosystem tends to be um, really effective with some consulting and bringing in revenue through some consulting. But I do think that when there is a proper opportunity and when the kind of for-profit arm can help propel and accelerate and put a gearbox in the engine of the organization, then it can make a lot of sense. But it has to be done strategically. And I think if it's done in a way that's, hey, this might be a way to bring in some extra revenue, but it doesn't tie into the bigger mission and there's no authentic connection there, then it's not as effective in our experience. Yeah, that, that brings me to something I'm wrestling with. I work for an organization that family was in the for-profit space and then moved into the non-profit space. And, you know, we're trying to build brand now in this online digital world. And, of course, unfortunately, we've been around 50 years, but in the physical world. And now all of a sudden, that's been taken away from us because of COVID-19. We've moved into the digital space Talk to me about what you're seeing with nonprofits there trying to move and build brand um, online. So my perspective on this is that this was coming and that COVID just accelerated it. And and so in certain ways, this to me is a silver lining of COVID. And not to say that there won't be a post-COVID world in which real world activities are still valuable and that there isn't, you know, the end of year gala or whatever, right? I think that's not going away um, once we're in more of a, normal culture again. But I do think that we're in 2020 and people communicate digitally, people learn digitally, people support and purchase things digitally. So we're a fully digital, globally connected culture at this point, and that's only going to become more true. And in the nonprofit space or the social impact space, organizations need to build a digital first culture and build that into their core mission and their core strategic planning and figure out how they can leverage digital strategies and digital platforms to propel their missions forward at a fundamental level. And one of the things that we think about a lot is how can we leverage digital to create real world impact? And so if that's fundraising, if that's advocacy, if that's digital organizing, it really depends on the mission and the niche that the organization thrives within in terms of what the right strategy is. But to think of digital, as we often see, as kind of a piecemealed or ad hoc or afterthought kind of thing that detracts from the core mission. And that's this kind of thing that, oh yeah, we have to do that too, because everyone else is. Um, You know, I get the challenge. I have empathy for the fact that these organizations are, um, you know, they don't have enough capacity. They don't have enough costs to cover their true true needs as an organization. They're already over under-resourced and over-committed, but we see this as being core to the success of the social impact sector moving forward. So let's talk about that for a second, because I tend to agree with everything you said. And I have a lot of organizations that I talk to that say, well, wait a minute, our best donors are in their 70s. They don't even check their email. 
and we've got this machine that's been running for us for 25, 30, 50 years, and it still produces 80% of our revenue, and that machine is typically direct mail or something like it, maybe events. How do we flip the switch, make that leap, and not lose all of our core supporters and revenue while we're trying to build this new thing? Like, what do you, how do you counsel organizations? I mean, I, I looked at your website, you got a lot of what I would consider younger brands, probably supported by younger audiences. But what about the kind of the legacy brands in the nonprofit space? How, how do they make that shift without hurting themselves? Totally. So we do have a number of organizations that we work with who are newly formed and might have a broader support base uh, across age demographics. But a lot of our organizations do have that exact machine in place um, and have a lot of uh, have had a lot of success traditionally with you know, an older generation of donors who are comfortable, you know, writing checks and sending them in the mail. And, you know, our suggestion to organizations like that who have a machine up and running that's working is not to turn that machine off, of course. Um, okay. Instead, to think about how long will that machine work for us, right? If we're talking about a, a demographic of donors in their 70s, there's a shelf life there, just strictly speaking, right? And on top of that, you know, we're looking at things beyond just fundraising. Fundraising is critical, obviously, to the, to the sustainability of an organization. But often we're also working with organizations who are trying to educate, trying to advocate, trying to share an idea and spread a message about their version of a better future. And I just don't think that that happens by mail as much these days. It's not to say that that needs to be completely removed from your strategy if you see success there. But I think to just um, ignore the culture shift that's happening is a short-sighted solution. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. So as a follow-up, I wonder, like, do you have any general rules of like, okay, if we're going to go into, we've got an organization that says we're committed to this change. We want to become the organization of the future in this space, right? How do you help them think about when and how and where to shift their investment? Right? Let's say they're spending $100,000 a year on legacy programming, direct mail, things like that. How do you help them think through how to shift those investments to more current technology and things like that in the digital space in a way that helps them rather than hurts them? The first step is really just trying to understand from our perspective when we, when we bring a new client on to, to use that framing sure. is really understanding like what is their mission and what is their theory of change, right? Like what are they trying to accomplish and what is their theory around how they're going to accomplish that? And then we try to create digital programs and strategies that support and empower that theory of change. And sometimes that means the theory of change needs some revision or some iteration. Um, and we believe that that's healthy and that it's not a healthy thing to have a you know schematic style theory of change that sits in some Google Drive folder or on your local server and that you know you reference in that annual board meeting or whatever, right? Like I think the theory of change should be living and breathing as a document and as a strategic tool. But we look at that because again, we're trying to figure out how can digital fit into the core approach and strategy of the organization. And so that's our starting point. And then the other big thing, and, and this is something we get a lot is, you know, we have this manifesto that we just released and, and you read it and it feels very empowering and very inspiring and also very intimidating because it's like, wow, we are not even close to this. Or maybe we're, we're halfway through, but how do we get to the next half, right? And my, my simple answer, and it might seem a little 
underwhelming is you got to take the first step. Like that is really where you start. And I think about this kind of like climbing a mountain metaphor and like, well, how are we possibly going to get up to the top? It's like, well, how are you going to get the first mile? Let's start there. And so that's different for every organization. I mean, I think the things that we believe are fundamental is a having a strong brand. And that's something that I, I think resonates with a lot of these organizations. But what we've found is especially in the nonprofit space, uh, there's not always people on staff who have expertise or experience building brands because they are scientists or researchers or they come from politics or, you know, academia or something, right? They social don't Social workers, yeah, for sure. Social workers, right? So they just don't have the in-house expertise. And I mean, that's, you know, where we come in as an agency, that's the niche that we fill is to help to educate them around brand building because that's really core. And so, yes, that means having a strong visual identity and mission and vision and values, but it's really the way that we think about building a brand and that's fundamental to all of this is what is your mission? What is your vision? And then how can you build a brand that consistently communicates that promise, communicates your impact in the real world, and then becomes a two-way conversation with a coalition of supporters that you guys are activating and communicating with. And that needs to be wrapped into a visual identity and strong digital experiences because that's what people expect in today's world when they're looking at Netflix and Twitter and Apple as the bar that's being set because the consumer or the the average citizen is not distinguishing between the experience they have with your brand and Netflix just because you're a social impact organization, right? The bar is set high and they want things to be clear. They want things to be frictionless and they want things to be delightful. And so how can we create experiences like that and use the brand as a vessel to communicate and to activate the audience? So that's kind of core, doing the work on building the brand. And, and that looks different depending on where we're starting from, but that's really fundamental. And then the next thing is really looking at what is your digital footprint and does that digital footprint effectively communicate who you are and what you do and who you serve and, and your theory of change and all of the core elements of being an effective social impact organization as kind of a, a step one, but also like how can your digital experiences actually activate your community? And if that's fundraising, if it's advocacy, if it's education, if it's just spreading ideas and amplifying other voices within your same sector, the opportunities are endless and it really, it takes looking at things holistically for it to work. So that's kind of a roundabout answer, but it really speaks to how we approach the problem. And then from there, we try to scope things out and get stuff out in the real world. Like oftentimes we find that the speed at which these organizations want to move um, or are able to move is too slow. And yeah. that you need to put a roadmap together and launch things and get them out in the real world and iterate. And so we take a little bit more of a, uh, you know, not strictly speaking, but we're guided by philosophies of design thinking more so than a six month research project and then a one year brand rollout. Like it's too late by then, right? right? You've, and, and you've spent all this time and effort and you haven't tested it um, effectively. And so I think maybe we're influenced by design thinking and by the startup world in terms of launching things, getting real user feedback and iterating from there. I think that really coincides well and supports this concept of let's take the first step. What does that look like? It's so hard to generalize that. It's so contextually sure. relevant yeah. to the organization, but I hope that kind of answers your question. I think it does. So, Oh, go ahead, Roy. Sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, the question I, I keep getting is how long is this going to take? <laughs> We're here at the bottom of the mountain. We got to get up there with our brand. Uh, how long does that March take? And I think I know the answer. I'm sure it, 
depends on the organization, but it's a significant investment, isn't it? It can be. I mean, it depends, uh, again, on the size of the organization and, and who you're trying to reach and, and activate and what the strategy is. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about this concept of what we call scroll stopping experiences. And that's kind of a metaphor mm. to if you're a, a user scrolling through your social feed, like where do you stop in that feed and what do you just scroll right by? One of the things that we believe in, and, and this is not a, a unique concept to us, it's just one that we know is true, is that content is king. So if you want to engage your community, you need content. And I think the bar is pretty low in our experience around what that content looks like in the social impact space compared to, you know, just the broader content ecosystem that's out there. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how can we do this in a way that's actually engaging and interesting and compelling and not your standard annual report or seven paragraph blog post about this thing. Like, how can we do it in audio? How can we do it in video? How can we do it in a little microsite that's engaging and interactive? And the, the benefit to that is that A, people will actually sit still, sit up straight and pay attention and consume the content that you put out there, which is the goal, right, of course. And B, there's a lot more opportunity for organic spread of that content and for that content to be picked up into earned media channels and other publications. And so, that can be an investment, certainly. And, and that's not where we start, right? If we're starting from the fundamentals, our first project is not let's create some interactive, engaging, scroll-stopping experience because that's a little bit of a cart before the horse. But when we start to get to those kind of things, it can be an investment in, in terms of um, video, in terms of mixed media or whatever it is, and digital media. And that can be costly and an investment. But our goal is to create a piece of content that has a longer life cycle and more value over time. And that's often the way that we frame those. So we think about those kind of like features, right? So if you were a, a, one of the metaphors we always um, use is that we want these organizations to start to think and act more like a digital media company versus a charity. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the digital media model, they have the dailies and the articles and the weeklies and the columns, but then they have the features, right? And maybe there's four a year that they do. Maybe it's a quarterly feature. So for your organization, what are your opportunities for features? What are the things that are more evergreen in nature and that making a bigger investment in makes sense in the long term and where you really want people to pay attention and get the message. And so that's another strategy that we like to employ. I want to pause on the brand piece for a second, because I think one of the things that a lot of charities struggle with around this is, you know, you might have an organization that has a headquarters in Washington, DC, and then they have sites all over the country. And for some of these organizations, it's even more complicated where it's like, yes, but 10 years ago, we absorbed this organization. And five years ago, we merged with that one. How do you attack this concept of really building a strong, coherent, easily digestible brand in an organization like that? Is, that? is there a different set of tools and strategies that you bring to the table around something like that versus like a single shingle type organization in one community? Or what might they have to think about differently than others? It's definitely different. And I think it's different mostly in terms of scale. When we're looking at something where there might be like a parent organization and there might be, let's say like chapters or something, right? Might be an example like that. It, it, it again, depends where we're starting from. And that core umbrella brand needs to be strong, right? Is maybe the term that we would use to describe something like that. And then from there, what we see more often is maybe spinning up what we call like program or campaign brands, right? Where and this makes sense to do if, let's say you have a long time organization that's been around for 30 years that you know has a few different focus areas. There might be some 
logical explanation for why it all connects. But to someone who's just getting engaged, it might be kind of confusing. Maybe you're doing some work in social justice, some work in environmental justice. You know that those two things are inseparable, but to try and create one brand that does both might feel a little bit muddy. That's a very common example, right? So oftentimes what we'll do is we'll say, okay, you've got your parent organization and it's been around for forever and it has a good reputation but you have a new program that you're spinning up or a new initiative or project that you're really passionate about that's maybe a little new and um, it needs a different wrapper to kind of get the right people excited about it. And the strategy dictates that this needs to be a little bit more grassroots in nature. So often what we'll do is we'll spin up a sub-brand for that initiative or that campaign or that program or that movement, depending on kind of what flavor it is, and then create a brand relationship between the two. And so you might come in the front door of that program brand and end up in the house of the parent brand. So that's just one example. But I think when you're just talking about an organization that has more broad reach and more scope, then it just means that there's just more to think about and more that you have to make sure you're connecting in a strategic way. And it starts really by engaging the right leaders within the organization that understand the different components of the organization and ensuring that you're creating a brand that's cohesive. And then the challenge is how do you balance that against creating a brand that feels like it's trying to speak to everything and then ends up saying nothing. That's where if we feel like we're getting close to that, then we start to look at spinning up program brands, spinning up sub brands so that those brands can really own that particular thing. And then you start to build out a little bit of like a house of brands, so to speak. So I think all three of us on this call understand the value that a brand can bring to an organization. I'm curious to get your thoughts. Is there ever a scenario where, the, where an organization's brand can get in the way of their fundraising? That's an interesting question. Uh, nothing pops into my brain immediately. And I have to admit I'm biased because I run a branding agency. <laughs> I think what I see more often is that the brand, if it's not invested in and nurtured in the right way, might actually be getting in the way of your organization without you knowing it. Like one of the things that we think about a lot is that your brand and your digital footprint cannot be neutral. It is either moving you forward or it's moving you back. And so you want to make sure that it's moving you forward. Oftentimes these organizations get so tunnel vision on their mission and their vision as they should and trying to create a positive impact that this feels less important to them, right? They're like, look, we could invest in our brand or we can spin up another small team that can do this program work on the ground. That's the mindset shift and the culture shift that we're trying to educate our clients and the broader sector on changing. And I think that what that leads to, if it's not accepted, is that the brand feels it's not reflective of the caliber of the organization. So as you're trying to build support or build a coalition to back your organization, people might share your values and really believe in your mission, but if they land on your digital experiences or they look at your brand and it feels like it's not intentional or it's not well built either consciously or subconsciously they start to think well what else is not very effective about this organization why should i support them are they effective will my time or my money or my energy or my endorsement actually make a difference in the world because that's at the end of the day what supporters want to do is they want to make an impact and they want to support organizations that they know are doing good and so that gets into all kinds of common practices of storytelling and impact reporting and that kind of upward spiral. But if it's all built on a shaky foundation of a weak brand, then it's pulling the whole thing down. Crazy curveball I want to throw at you. 
One of the things Andrew and I have been wrestling with, dealing with, I'm not sure what the right term is, over the last couple of months, there's been a proliferation of articles on the number of nonprofits that are going to either go out of business this year or, of course, our preference is this, that they'll merge with another nonprofit. And they think as many as a third to a half of the two million nonprofit organizations in the United States are going to go out of business or merge with another nonprofit. For those that are doing mergers, talk to me about some of the uh, branding issues that they're going to face, because it's going to be a challenge, I think. Definitely. Well, I think the way that I would think about that scenario, if I were you know, being brought on as a, an agency or if I were a leader in one of these two organizations that would be merging is starting with an audit around you know, who's doing a better job from a branding perspective, from a reputation perspective, who's got the larger audience, who has the more engaged audience. And that might dictate, is there an opportunity to kind of roll one brand under the other? versus do we spin up a new brand under this kind of merger to use your language? I think if there's an equal footing between the two brands in terms of their reputation and the awareness within their sector or their niche in the ecosystem, then that might be a time to think about building a new brand that's a synergistic brand of the two and and starting to think about some distribution and communication strategies to start to prime the audience. You know, I, of course, would take an optimistic look at like, we're excited about the future. The silver lining of this current situation is that we've got a new partner that we're merging with. And we think that this is a good idea because of X, Y, and Z. And this is all being rolled into this new organization and it's called this. So presenting it not in a scarcity mindset, but more in a opportunity for growth and for further impact. If there's a brand of the two that has, you know, a lot better of a audience or public perception, then my recommendation would likely be to kind of leverage that brand and not disassemble all the work that's been assembled on that brand and then start to educate the other brand's audience that they're being absorbed or joining forces with this other brand. So just as a clarification, you're I don't think I hear you saying this, but you're not saying just go with the one that has the larger necessarily social following, let's say. But really, it's more about who's more engaged. Is that right? I think generally that would be a better way to think about it. It's not true necessarily that a larger social following means a more engaged audience, especially with the way these platforms change all the time. And so I'd be looking at metrics. Yeah, certainly social following as one of the pieces of information, but not the only. I'd be looking at things like digital donation and conversion rates and email engagement, just to like list off a few and t- take a holistic look and try and get a sense of who has A, the more engaged audience, especially through digital channels, and then B, who has a either a, a stronger or a more resilient or a more um, and a, a better engaged audience with regards to digital specifically is kind of where I would start. Um, again, a little biased here being on the digital side of things, but that's where we see the future going. And so I wouldn't look just at raw numbers, um, although that is an important metric. I'd look at engagement as kind of a holistic concept. By the nature of your answer, it sounds like the preference would be for one of these brands to be stronger rather than creating a new third brand <laughs> or fourth brand or a whole new thing altogether. Is that is that kind of what your, your answer implies is that it, it's usually better to build from something that's recognizable than to start all over? 
Yeah, I would say that's generally a good way to think about it. If these two brands are maybe neither of them are performing particularly well with regards to audience engagement and they're both relatively new, then it might make sense to spin up a third brand that and it also kind of depends on like how aligned are the organizations and is there a shift in the focus or the mission or the scope and is the current brand going to be limiting or is it not targeted the right way? Like for example, we're working with a client right now that's been doing a lot of food policy advocacy here in California. And they've traditionally done things in kind of a political wonk framework, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And they've realized that they have an opportunity and a need to expand their audience to a more general public. And so their old brand was not positioned that way. The name was not something that was memorable or that was appealing to the broader audience. So it made sense for them to do a rebrand at that point. And they weren't merging, so it's not a perfectly relevant example. But that's kind of an example of where it might make sense to spin up a new brand if the scope or the mission or really the audience that you're trying to engage dictates a new brand. At that point, it makes sense to buckle down and and invest and do it right. But you really need a reason to do it. (laughs) You need a good reason, yeah. I want to ask a question, again, kind of one of those a little bit out of left field, but I'm wondering if you have any guidance or insight for organizations, particularly, you know, what we've seen over the last six or eight months with not just COVID issues, but with civil unrest that's been happening across the country. If an organization makes a misstep, uh, someone on staff says something that's insensitive, that gets them in hot water, they take a position on a policy their community thinks is inappropriate, and they they all of a sudden have a brand reputation problem. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times organizations think, oh no, that, that's kind of like the death knell. We're either going to have to you know, shut down and rebrand. We have to hide under a rock, you know, all, things like that. What are some ways forward through those kind of things that you've seen organizations kind of successfully navigate? Well, I'll just start by saying I'm not a crisis management expert. Like sure. That's not the kind of work that we yep. do with our clients. And so take my answer with a grain of salt, um, I guess, with that in mind. My personal opinion on this is that transparency is always right and truth and honesty is always right. And that if you're sweeping things under the rug, there's probably other things you're sweeping under the rug too. That's the way that I think about this when I see you know bad examples of how organizations have dealt with this. And this is not the time to try and sweep things under the rug because it just doesn't work anymore, frankly. <laughs> I think that that's something that we've seen. And, you know, there's all kinds of debates around cancel culture and has it gone too far? And, you know, we don't need to get into all of that. But let's just say that it's hard to sweep things under the rug in 2020 when there's like a digital footprint on everything that happens. I think that this is another example of why being strong with your communications and consistently showing that your organization is effective, is intelligent and intentional and is doing good offsets any potential missteps that might happen. And then, you know, it also comes down to, is this the a misstep of a leader? Is this a misstep of leadership? Is this a misstep of a particular employee who's somewhere in the hierarchy? Like all of that means a lot in terms of what the response should be. But in general, from a brand perspective, I think truth, transparency, honesty, and having a reputation that's really strong and sticking to that offsets any potential setbacks that you might have with regards to these issues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to shift direction here. What you shared earlier makes a ton of sense about why organizations should be investing in digital. And I think, you know, for a lot of organizations, when they hear that, they immediately think digital media. Should we be doing paid search? Should we be doing, you know, social advertising, things like that? Talk a little bit about the importance, if you will, of investing in the platform side 
of the digital space rather than just the media side. Like, what's your point of view on that? Our point of view is that your website or your digital hub should be the hub of the entire ecosystem. And so as you are doing anything that we would kind of broadly put in the category of distribution, it should always be driving back to your digital hub or a digital experience that allows users to get back to the digital hub. So as an example, oftentimes a, a method that we'll employ is we'll have kind of a main, what people might call a marketing marketing or storytelling website that does all the things that you know a marketing or storytelling site should do, which is kind of inform and clarify the mission and the vision of the organization and talk about the history and you know about the leadership team and who they help and all that kind of stuff. But if you have that and a donate button, like that isn't it, right? That's not going to do much. And, and even if you're driving people to that donate page. So often what we'll do is we'll build out a separate section of the digital hub that we'll call an action center. Um, and this looks different depending on whether you're an advocacy focused organization or, you know, um, whether you're doing social or environmental justice work, right? Like what kind of actions you're asking people to take might differ greatly and will differ greatly based on that. But when we think about things like social media and email marketing and Google ads and Google search, all of that should be driving people to take action on your digital hub. And what those actions are, again, is going to vary. But having that strong platform is a prerequisite to, I wouldn't want to see a client spend any money on Google or you know Instagram or Facebook unless there's actions that people can take on the website beyond just having a donate button. So I suspected you would say something like that. What do you say to the organization that says it's cheaper for us to just manage everything on Facebook, you know, rather than building out a big website and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I have this conversation at least once a quarter. The organization says, well, social is essentially free. So we'll just build out our presence there. Yeah. Why is that a bad idea? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why it's a bad idea. One is that not everyone's on Facebook. Um, and I, I mean, clearly Facebook still has the the lion's share of, of the social space, but especially the younger generation is not on Facebook. And so it's a closed platform and they own the content and you're subject to um, the rules and regulations that Mark Zuckerberg thinks is going to make him the most money, frankly. And so I think that that's a bad long-term strategy. And we've already seen a few permutations of this backfiring early on as an organization with a page on Facebook, your posts got just as much attention as anyone else's posts did. If there was someone in your family sharing family photos, you'd see that and then you'd see a post from your organization and they'd be equal. That's no longer true. For things to show up in people's feed as of probably about five years ago now, you basically have to pay to boost your post to get stuff into people's organic feed. So that's just one kind of practical reason why you want to own that content and you want to own the experience and have complete control over how it's presented and how it's accessible and make sure that it's uh, equally accessible and equitably accessible to everyone who has an internet connection, which not everyone does, but most people do. And that's growing, you know, year over year. So that's a, a pretty solid investment. So that's one kind of practical reason why. Another is that there's just this expectation that I can find you and I can look at your website and I can engage with your brand that way. And I might see you first and likely will see you first through a forwarded email or a social post or a Google ad. But my expectation is if I'm interested in learning more about you, I'm going to go to your website. You know, I might check you out on social media as a first step, but if that's the last step of an engaged online supporter, that's a bad thing. Thank you. Um, I, we have just a few more minutes. I want a couple quick questions. First of all, Roy, do you have anything else you want to? Well, I mean, touched on something that just walk me through your concept of, of how you've used 
microsites to build brand versus a main site. You know, I work with an organization. Our, our main site tends to be the driver for our programs and our client support. And so it's not really a, a fund development site at its core. You know, we're embarking on a strategy using microsites, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on how that could help or hurt our brand. <laughs> I, I know I know I'm getting free consultation advice here, Andrew. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really good question that would broadly appeal to your audience, though. So it, it's a good question. And, and if not, he'll send you a bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way that we think about microsites is definitely like first we want to have that main hub dialed in, right? This is not the thing you do first. Where it really makes sense and where we tend to use them are for creating experiences that are really targeted towards a specific outcome, right? Where we really want to control the narrative of the user and the experience of the user. So with a main hub or, or storytelling or marketing type site, it's kind of a little bit of a choose your own adventure and you know you can easily get into the weeds and you know, we do our best when we design those to create user flows that are intuitive and get people to the information they're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. But a microsite is a, an opportunity to create a more narrative approach. So we'll use them as an example in creating digital annual reports rather than the, you know, stodgy 30 page print thing that no one reads, but actually doing something digitally, there's so much more opportunity there. You can look at metrics to see what people care about and, you know, make decisions based on that information, all that kind of stuff. So that's one example. Another is we're working with a client right now to spin up a new campaign brand and it's a pretty bold goal that they're working on. And so there's kind of a need to educate people around their approach. This is a, a, an issue that a lot of people care about. There's a lot of different solutions. There's a lot of debate around if it's good or bad. And so we started by saying, we need an action center for this. We're going to build that. But there's this, if we just have an action center, but no context and no education around, not the issue so much, but your particular approach or theory of change to the issue then how will people know if they should support it, right? And so we're building out a microsite for that that we're calling an education center. It's all about, here's how we got here. Here's our solution. Here's how we know it's going to work. Here's why we think there's still time to do this. And here's how you can get involved and help. And we're doing that in a way that's really simple and clear and scoped and not overwhelming, not big blocks of text, but lots of imagery and pull quotes and stats and photos of people, right? It can be emotional, it can be experiential. So that's a couple of examples of where a microsite might work. And, and we tend to think about them for campaigns or for very tightly scoped intentional reasons. Excellent. All right, so la last question before we let you go. What recommendations, if any, do you have, you know, one or two things that nearly every organization should be thinking about right now today as it relates to their brand and the digital experience that they provide for their constituents. Like what are the top two or three recommendations that you might have? First of all, checking out our site and our manifesto designed by cosmic.com. And you can just click the manifesto tab right at the top because it goes into basically our theory around how this should all work and our philosophy. And so a much deeper answer to this question is all outlined there. So I just want to point that out. But the core idea behind that manifesto is that we've entered a new economy and it's an attention economy and that information is free and it's in excess at this point. And the new scarcity is attention. And so thinking about things from that perspective 
should guide all of the decisions and the investments that you make. And so how can you get people to pay attention to your brand? And I think that that happens through your brand building and your digital experiences, but give me a reason to care, right? Like that's the first place to start. And, and so do it in a way that's interesting, that's compelling, that's bold, that's different. And you have a lot um, more chance of success with whatever you're trying to do online. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is again, how can you leverage your digital platform and your digital channels to actually catalyze change in the real world? So don't think about it as, yeah, we want people to go to the website so they can learn about us and maybe they'll donate or even, Hey, we want people to go to the website so they'll donate. But like, how can you actually leverage this vast opportunity of a globally connected digital culture to move your mission forward and to engage more people than you'd ever be able to gauge in the real world alone. So those are like the two philosophies that guide the, the way that we approach our work. And again, more tactical stuff can be found on our site. We have an insights tab where we publish articles frequently, but I would start at the manifesto and dig into those things and then spread out from there. Awesome. Well, this has been really insightful. I think there's a ton of value for our listeners. Thanks for being here. Before we let you go, what are the easiest ways for people to reach you? So you can email me directly at eric, E-R-I-C, at designbycosmic.com. You can go to our website at designbycosmic.com where you can find the manifesto and our insights and contact information, learn more about us and see case studies and all that good stuff. And then we're on LinkedIn and Twitter on social. And so any of those channels are fine, but I'm definitely open to anyone emailing me directly. That's my real email address I use every day and totally happy to field any questions there too. Awesome. Amen. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. We are honored. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.